welcome to Corner Rest, the best podcast in the world. And we're live. Here in the virtual studio joining me is John Martin. John Martin is an old friend of mine. He and I go way back. We have a musical history together. You see, me and John were in a band together in high school called Taravada, along with Ian Kohler, who has also been interviewed for this show. John is and was a good musician He's also a smart guy. Thanks. He is uh, what you would call a mechanical engineer, currently working at NREL, the National Renewable Energy Lab in, I think it's Denver, Colorado. I know it's Colorado. Mm-hmm. He is confirming. The Denver metro area. So, Okay. Close enough. Close yeah. enough. But anyway, we go way back. And what we have agreed to do here tonight is we have each chosen four albums that we are familiar with, but that the other is not. Originally, we chose five, but for time reasons, we shaved it down to four. So each of us is basically was given the task of listening to these new albums, and we're going to get into it. We're going to talk about our opinions. We're going to debate, and possibly virtual fisticuffs will fly, but we'll see. You know, maybe we'll agree on everything, but that would be boring. So I think, you know, if, if, if we agree on everything, we're going to have to make up some controversy. Sound good? Oh, yeah. Sounds great. Sounds great. Let's get into it. So let's start with an album that I recommended to John. And this is the album Excitable Boy by Warren Zevon. This is probably the best known album that we're going to be talking about today. I actually was a little surprised that John hadn't heard of it. I, I recommended it hoping he hadn't because I wanted to talk about it. But, I mean, certainly he knew and was familiar with the song Werewolves of London. I think probably anybody listening to this has heard that song at least once. I'm pretty sure it's been in movies. It's on the radio all the time. It's a popular song. You know it. Even if you don't know, you know it. It's the most heard song we'll be talking about. Oh, for sure. It's definitely. It's a big hit. Uh, It's on classic rock radio all the time. So uh, we're going to talk about this album, Warren Zevon. You know, this came out in the 1970s. I don't have the year right in front of me. Maybe John knows. Do you know? I'll talk about that. Okay, perfect. Um, I like this album a lot. I really enjoy Warren Zevon's songwriting style. I like the lyrics. I think they're often very funny. I think he has a, a bunch of great tunes. And his voice might be a an acquired taste, although I, I like it just fine. But I think uh, I think this album is quite nice. So I'm going to kick it over to you, John. What did you think? Well, yeah, you said his voice is an acquired taste. Maybe. I don't know. For me, I like it immediately. And he reminds me a lot of Elvis Costello, actually. And I know a lot of other people say that Elvis Costello is an acquired taste as well. I quite like Elvis Costello as yeah. well. Yeah, I like his voice. Yeah. I think when I only knew of Werewolves of London, you know, the da, 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 very famous piano part, yeah. you recognize that, you know what song I'm talking about. So 
having only heard that song, I initially envisioned that he was, you know, sort of a country or Southern rock type dude. But I don't well, know. Yeah. Yeah. You go ahead, because I think I know. What well, and the reason for that probably is because that groove and that chord progression are virtually identical to uh, Sweet Home Alabama. It's it's the same three chords played in it basically the same rhythm. It's very, very, very reminiscent of Sweet Home Alabama. I personally like it a lot more, um, but I can definitely well, see where you'd where you'd make that association. So go on. The song that I obviously like a lot more than either of those is All Summer Long by Kid Rock. You know, one of the greatest <laughs> songs in rock history. How could you forget about that? I was going to say, I don't know if that song like subliminally made me think that Warren Zevon was a Southern rockish type guy. But then you listen to the rest of the album. And I think instead of Southern rock, I'd more group him in with, I want to call it romantic dad rock, Jackson Brown, <laughs> that type of yeah. stuff. Yes. And I think I read Jackson, well, Jackson Brown, actually, Brown sings on the album. Yeah. Oh, he sings on it. I think he does some backing vocals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that uh, Lindsey Buckingham from Fleetwood Mac plays some guitar. It's, Although, don't quote me on that. I no, believe he does. It's the Fleetwood Mac of Fleetwood Mac. Werewolves of London, the rhythm section, oh. is the Fleetwood Mac rhythm section. Uh, okay. Mick Fleetwood and John McVeigh. Yeah. On bass okay, and great. drums, respectively. Cool, cool. Yeah, very cool. But uh, yeah, romantic dad rock, I think, is if I had to describe the genre. And you asked, what year did it come out in? That was a question I was asking myself as I listened to this album. And you listen to the first five songs, and you get a sense that this is maybe late 60s, early 70s, that kind of feel. And then... yeah. Immediately when the sixth time, when Nighttime and the Switching Guard starts, like, wait a second. No, this is a late 70s album because this is a yeah. very disco song we have right here. That's true. That's true. And I think uh, you'll notice that in much more famous album, Some Girls by the Rolling Stones. That's another great example of a classic rock band throwing in some disco in there. With uh, That's true. That's with true. The, uh... Oh, God, I can't remember the name of the song. <laughs> Miss you. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Well, that was, that was out there. That was really popular at the time. And I mean, to be clear, this is not a disco album, excitable boy, not at all, but you're right. That song does definitely allude to the disco sound that was, but it was released the in the time. period where more rocking artists were throwing in little splashes of disco to try to, you know, broaden their, their uh, fan base and customers. For sure, for sure. And, you know, I think there's definitely nothing wrong I'm not with saying that rock that is, music. No, I'm not saying that. Is no, no. But, you know, rock music and, and all music really has always kind of drawn on other genres, other styles, and I think that's a good thing. So, um, okay, so this, 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 I guess, maybe not shattered your expectations, but it was a little different than what you were expecting based on the one really popular song. Mm-hmm. So what did you think of the rest of the uh, of the rest of the album? I really liked it. So this is one of those like story song albums, but I don't want to say that it's like a long rambling American Pie or uh Devil Went Down to <laughs> Georgia story song or uh Alice's Restaurant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not quite like that. It's about all these characters. I, and yeah. it, it kind of reminds me in that way, it's all like these seedy Backstreet characters. It's kind of like 
what Tom Waits sings about, although Tom Waits is much, much more depressing than Warren Zevon. Yes. This is much more upbeat. Yeah. Even though it has a song about a headless Thompson guy. <laughs> and his voice is definitely more, you know, immediately appealing. I mean, I said it's an acquired taste, but like like Tom Waits is actually an acquired taste and some people will never acquire. I like Tom Waits. I think you do too. But, you know, I can see why some people wouldn't like his singing. Yeah, maybe it's it's a little syrupy, like uh, like I think uh, Elvis Costello also is. Yeah. To me, it's very soothing, pleasant baritone and kind of has a romantic feel to it. Romantic dad rock. It does. It does. And you're right to compare with Elvis Costello. I mean, this was the same period... And clearly there are some of the same influences going on. And actually, I mean, even Fleetwood Mac was sort of pointing in that direction at that time. Yeah, Fleetwood Mac, they would also be romantic dad rock, I think. Yeah, yeah. But like in the, and in the late 70s, they also kind of were a little bit influenced by like the very early beginnings of of like new wave that was starting to come out. Which oh, yeah. I'm not suggesting that this album is a new wave album at all, but... But uh, I don't know. There's something of a linkage there. So did any tracks uh, really jump out at you? Or Well, I think I already mentioned uh, Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner. Yeah, I love that song. It's sort of like a, you know, telling at sail at a sailor's bar type of song. It's about this, you know, character, a Norwegian mercenary, who ends up fighting in Biafra. Biafra, <laughs> which I Googled today. Like, I'd heard of that before. It was like this short-lived African Republic. I didn't realize that what it was was a uh, attempted breakaway state from Nigeria. And then, of course, there was a horrible uh, beatdown of that revolution by the Nigerian yeah. uh, military government. Unfortunate. But again, this is the type of, you know, really a story song that you can you can let take you away and let yourself get lost in the tale. Yeah, it's a longer song and it has several verses and it really it is a story. It's sung very clearly. So, yeah, I mean, you really do get kind of absorbed in the story, um, which I, I quite enjoy. I'm not a big lyrics guy usually, but I can make exceptions. And if the lyrics are kind of interesting or if there's a compelling story being told, I can get into it. So I quite like the lyrics on that song. I mean, it definitely depends to me what type of uh, band it is, how much I pay attention to the lyrics. Yeah. I, I, I can't quote a single lyric from Ulcerate <laughs> for sure. But uh, anyway, standout songs, obviously, Werewolves of London is a highly standout song. And I don't need to tell you why. But I want to tell you what I noticed about Werewolves of London on listening to it closely that I hadn't picked up, you know, hearing it on the radio. And that is the triple overdub guitar solo is fantastically recorded. I love that little bit. And I didn't realize how good it was listening to it on the radio. Once you put headphones on, you get the nice, you know, immersion into that sound. You can realize just how great of recording that is. Yeah, it's like triple overdubbed harmonies, so it's like three different guitars. I mean, it's obviously one guitarist just recording themselves three times, but it's almost like a little chorus of guitars, and they're playing kind of the same rhythm but different notes in harmony. It's quite nice. Uh, I agree with you. That is a really nice guitar solo. I've always liked that one. And there's some actually some really nice playing. Like I really like the sax playing on the title track. As a bunch of sax solos, and I quite enjoy all of them. 
and Johnny Strikes Up the Band is a really fun opener. Honestly, I quite like this album pretty much from start to finish, so I'm glad we had the opportunity to talk about it. Do you have anything else to say about it, or shall we move on? Well, let me give you my final rating. I like to use the bags of popcorn scale, so we're doing this out of five bags of popcorn. I give it four and a half bags of popcorn, but that fifth bag, it actually appears like it's full, because what I've done is I've put in a gun and some silver bullets on the bottom of that bag. So I, I know the gun laws in the UK aren't quite as liberal as they are here in, in, in the States or in Canada. But uh, if the bobbies come up to him, it just looks like an innocent bag of popcorn, but he's still got protection. Oh, man, we're going to get sued for using the popcorn. And that's OK. I'm OK. It's a risk I'm willing to take. All right. Well, introduce the next uh, the next discussion point, John. All right. What album do you want to talk about next? So the album I will talk about, and this is an album that I really like that Joe has never heard. Well, until now. Until now. And that is For Your Pleasure by Roxy Music. Roxy Music is, you could call them a glam rock band, but they were also, at the start at least, just very experimental and out there. So this was early 70s, 1972, when glam rock was really hitting its heyday. Mm-hmm. And in their first two albums, this is the second, there were two creative geniuses, if you will, in Roxy Music. The two Brians, Brian Ferry, the singer, and Brian Eno, the electronic keyboard guy. So a lot of you, I'm sure, have heard of Brian Eno, but not as many have heard Brian Ferry. Brian Ferry is, in my mind, the most unusual singer who has ever gotten a career as a solo pop singer artist, because that's what he became after Roxy Music. He did all of this weird experimental shit in Roxy Music and then just slowly morphed into a, you know, very easy listening pop star. And the song you may have heard, it's most famous. More than this. No, that's nothing. That's uh, that's Brian Ferrer's very pronounced vibrato I'm trying to imitate. But anyway, their second album, uh, Roxy Music, this is the last album with Brian Ferry and Brian Eater together. And I think the combination of the two of them is really what made them just stand out from the crowd. And that when they split off, Roxy Music just couldn't keep going as good. Anyway, tell me, what did you think of For Your Pleasure? I was surprised by it because I had never really listened to Roxy Music before, but I had heard of them and I had always heard them kind of mentioned in the same breath as bands like Television that were kind of proto-punk. I mean, yes, I knew that there was that association with glam rock. It's that kind of, not the late proto-punk, but one of those bands that, or like the Velvet Underground would be another example. One of these bands that just kind of explores rock music from a different angle than the really popular bands of the early 70s, like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. And instead of going in the kind of progressive direction or exploring like the blues and kind of pushing these really, you know, epic song lengths and doing, uh, you know, double albums and concept albums and things like that. Bands that were a little bit more stripped down and kind of paved the way toward punk. And also, like, I know about Brian Eno and I know that he's an electronic experimental music guy. Like, that's his thing. Uh, I know he did 
some of the music that's used in Windows 95. You know, it's like the... Oh, shit. That's a Brian Eno composition? Yes, that is Brian Eno. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) That's the sign-on music in Windows 95. Look it up, folks. Uh, That's Brian Eno. Uh, And Robert Fripp did some of the music in, like, Windows Vista or Windows... One of the later Windows. Bet Steve Jobs tried to get, like, Alan Parsons to do a (laughs) one-upping. Did he? No, I'm, I'm just speculating. Oh, that would have been funny. Yeah, Alan Parsons or like uh, Rick Wakeman or (laughs) there's all sorts of stupid things you could do. So I was expecting more like droning synths and um, I was expecting honestly less melody than than there actually is on this album. It's a very catchy album. It is quite experimental, as you say. Um, but it, it, it did feel more like a, a more typical glam rock album than I was expecting just because of Brian Eno being on it and me not being familiar with it. So just let me ask you, what is Brian Eno doing on this album? Like, what can I attribute to him? The, all, all of the synthesized sense, all keyboard sense. Okay. That's Brian Eno. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there's some like, I don't know if you'd call it sampling, but there's some like kind of noise that's like. Oh, yeah. Incorporated into the texture. Is that him? I'm sure he's doing all sorts of fuckery with the <laughs> with the post tape manipulation and stuff. So I uh, I quite liked it. And I'm bad at remembering the names of songs, but it's all good. I got them up here. OK, well, actually, let me get that open real quick. I may not have a lot to say about individual tracks, but that's fun. I. Do the Strand. That was a good one. Beauty Queen was another good one. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I didn't think there was a, 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 a Grey Lagoons was another good one. Yeah, yeah. I'm just remembering now from looking at the names of the songs. Um, I quite enjoyed the whole thing, and I found it again. I would have, I would have assumed that this would be very similar to something like the Velvet Underground, but I found it a lot more, a lot more enjoyable, and a lot more, a lot less. Like difficult to get into. Like I was mm-hmm. able to just kind of sit down and 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 rock out to it, and I was really happy about it. Yeah, that. and I think you can attribute a lot of that to Brian Ferry. He was the one who's checking Brian Eno's more experimental tendencies and make yeah. sure, hey, let's keep this music catchy and enjoyable and something that everyone can everyone can groove to. And I can totally see that because some songs are more experimental, some songs are more catchy and poppy. And then some songs have a little bit of both, but it's always, there's always a pretty good balance. So I was pleased by that. I was expecting this to be uh, the kind of thing that personally I would have probably had to listen to like five or six times before the musical charms would reveal themselves. But I did not find that to be the case. That's great. I was able to sit down and listen. And right away I was vibing on these tunes. Yeah. And I just have to say, I think far and away the crowning jewel of this album is the song In Every Dream Home A Heartache. This is a love song written to a blow-up doll. <laughs> and this was 1972, mind you. But it's a great, you know, tearing down of the false utopia that suburban life represents. And mm. it's great because it's got these creepy, creepy, creepy organs that just slowly yes. build and build in more and more layers until halfway through the song, you get, I blew up your body. And then everything stops. But you blew my mind. And then it just breaks out into a rocking second half. 
that just no lyrics, uh, everything. Well, no, there are lyrics, but it's just, you know, the same line over and over again. Everybody's rocking out. And then they do the helter skelter false fade out, fade back in. Yep. Yep. Which yep. is a little cliche, but wasn't at this point, I think. No, it it, it hadn't been done as many times as it has now. It's it, Now it's kind of played out, but. At that time, it was still avant-garde. It still had an edge doing the false fade out and then coming back. It's like, woo. Mm-hmm. I mean, I even liked when Mr. Bungle did it on uh, one of the songs, one of the songs on Disco Volante. Oh, and fun fact about In Every Dream, Homer Hardick, the Melvins did a cover of this with Jello Biafra of Dead Kennedys fame, also named Biafra, yep. which we talked about, Yeah, which was perfect because he has that same overly pronounced vibrato. <laughs> Yes, he does. Actually, you're right. And I think that's maybe also why um, this band gets kind of put out there as like a precursor to punk, because the the singing style is very, I mean, it's it's so different from, you know, like your Robert Plants or your, um, the guy from Deep Purple, uh, whose name eludes me at this moment, Ian Gillen, Ian Gillian, something like that. Yeah. But it's it's very raw and very like accented and yeah you're right it's it is kind of similular to Jello Biafra yeah I think I think I'm sure Jello Biafra was a fan of this kind of stuff for sure I think a lot of the early punk guys yeah and early early hardcore guys probably were yeah and I like that you mentioned Deep Purple because most people know only know Deep Purple as the Smoke on the Water band but he doesn't really do that vibrato yeah. in Smoke on the Water. He does it in no, he doesn't. other stuff. Yeah, you're right. Because I'm a speed king. Oh, he does it a little bit in, in Smoke on the Water, oh, but is? not much. Oh, when it all was over. Yeah. Yeah, he does He does a little bit of embellishing in some of the later verses. But yeah, you're right. Not, not a lot. More in like, more in some of the other tunes. All right, let's move on. I would like to talk about a band that... John briefly mentioned, or an album by a band that John briefly mentioned. The band is Ulcerate. Now, I don't have a lot of knowledge about this band. I know that they are a sort of technical extreme metal band from New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And the album is Stare Into Death and Be Still. This is uh, an album I only heard for the first time pretty recently. It was introduced to me by my friend Mike, who will be doing some podcasting stuff with me as well. So maybe him and I can talk about this at some point. But he recommended it to me as a kind of newer metal album that he really digs. Like me, he is not a big fan of very kind of wanky progressive metal. Mm -hmm. And yet this album is very technical. It is pretty complicated. But what I like about it is... Complicated song structures and difficult rhythms are used in service of a mood, a very dark mood, granted, but it's still used for texture as opposed to just for showing off. That's my opinion. Let's hear what John has to say. So just before we get into this, you talked about wanky progressive metal. Were you referring to Tool? Because <laughs> I was very disappointed by the album they released this year. No, I haven't heard it, actually. Very disappointed. It was very wanky. And I was a little upset that the general consensus seems to be like, it's so good. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, let's talk about this album, which is much better. 
Yes, it is. I was referring to, you know, bands like Dream Theater and other, you know, progressive metal bands, which yes, there are many of, and they are of varying quality, and I don't necessarily dislike all of them, but, you know, there is a certain branch of technical metal, which is just kind of needless shredding and, and boring. So let's, yeah, let's so, see what you have to say about Ulcerate. Uh, very very technical as you mentioned so this album i think sort of uh hybridizes two different very technical genres because on the, in the background and the first thing you hear when you start this album it's got this sort of very uh soaring i don't know atmospheric you know har- yes. harmonic laden guitar tones type this very you know reverby metal sound yes a kind of sound that I contribute more to, like, these American sludge metal bands like Mastodon and Baroness. Yep. But then when the drums and vocals come in, you've got these blast beats, these ridiculously, yep. you know, the drummer must burn 2,000 calories when he plays a show <laughs> type of extremely technical drumming which you normally don't hear together. Yeah, for sure. Normally when you hear nope. that type of drumming and vocals, it's all by itself. And you're hearing one of these like extreme Norwegian slash whatever Scandinavian black metal bands, you know, yeah, the kinds of bands that burn down churches. But this doesn't seem like the type of band that burns down churches. This seems no like the kind of band. They're from New Zealand. They're probably too polite for that. Yeah, that loves the power and the energy that you can get from those ter- those elements. But they probably, like me, get really, really bored if that's all that happens for the entire thing. Yeah. If it's just that, and it never relents, because this has, you know, those, those soaring, shimmering, you know, very melodic guitar tones in the background. So it's infinitely more melodic than any of those... But also a lot of dissonance. A lot of dissonance, too. There's also a lot of dissonance. But it's 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 not like – it's not noise. I mean, it's never noise. The, the guitar tone is very clear, which I appreciate. But it's not wanky, shredding nonsense. It is often dissonant but, but beautiful. There's like a there's – a, there's a beauty to the, to the chaos and to the, the savagery that's on display, the sonic savagery. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. There is beauty to it. One, My one criticism of this album, even though it's not nearly as bad as it is on like other metal albums, it gets a bit saturated at points. Like all those albums that I'm talking about are all crashing together and it's sort of difficult to pick anything out. I, I don't know, though, if that maybe that is what you talked about. There's some things that you just have to get used to. It's like the first time you listen to any, you know, album that's more technical like me me listening to this is probably like someone who listens to taylor swift listening to say what's like a slightly comp listening to faith no more for the first time i don't know yeah <laughs> and or listening to yyz by rush or yes or like just that, listening to know, any song that's not you know your typical verse chorus or you know singer guitar bass yeah. drums anyway it's a little saturated but again like i'm saying i don't want to be the Emperor and Amadeus saying there's simply too many notes. Just remove <laughs> a few and it'll be perfect. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't like too many notes, but I don't feel like there are too many notes here because, again, I feel like it's all in service of a mood and an atmosphere, and that's what I appreciate about it. That's why, I mean, I wouldn't want to only listen to stuff like this. It would certainly get boring. I mean, if I only listen to one kind of music anyway, it's going to get boring. But, like, this is admittedly, like... It's like there are certain foods that you you really enjoy, but you you, you can't eat them every day. Mm-hmm. You know, this is kind of like that in terms of of listening, just because it, it it can be kind of ugly. And you're right, it is fairly saturated, but nonetheless, it feels like something is being communicated, and there's actually some emotion behind it. And that's no. why I that's why I have to uh, give it some props. Well, I give it four bags of popcorn, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to give them an unpopped fifth bag and a fire extinguisher and if on the next tour they have that takes them through scandinavia they spot one of those black metal bands that they love so much burning down a church they use that fire extinguisher to put out the fire they can take that unpopped fifth bag and put it on the smoldering embers and pop their fifth bag and then we'll have five bags poor black metal they always get tarred because of the actions of like two bands in Norway in like the 90s although you can kind of see why it's pretty ridiculous yeah. <laughs> burning churches is is pretty mm-hmm. it's pretty over the top yeah cool beans all right what are we going to talk about next so the next album i gave joe would be i often dream of trains mm-hmm. by mr robin hitchcock Okay, so so I had never even heard of. Okay, no, you want to introduce, of course, of course, please. So by all means, Robin Hitchcock was originally the lead singer songwriter of a band called the Soft Boys, and they put out an album that is very highly regarded in indie rock circles called Underwater Moonlight. That album was in 1980, I believe, and it's one of those albums that. Music fans have not heard as much as the musicians themselves, and it's very highly cited and very influential. I know that Michael Stipe of R.E.M. cites that as one of his biggest influences, and you can really see it, because Robin Hitchcock is great at doing that same jangly guitar type of stuff that you yep. see a lot in R.E.M. Yep. But this isn't uh, that album. That album was a rock album. This album is a very quiet acoustic folk album and that was intentional because robin hitchcock's first two solo albums after the soft boys were not very well received and i think he was struggling to find himself as a solo artist without a band to go with him and this was his epiphany and his third attempt at a solo album he fucking nails it this is possibly the my favorite bedtime album, if you will, because mm. it's so soft, it's so soothing, but it's not boring at all. And no. you only hear one electric guitar the entire time, and it's in effectively the, the, the closing song, the title song, I Often Dream of Trains. And that song is fucking beautiful, and one of the few songs to genuinely bring me to tears when I heard it live, I will admit. Anyway, Oh, you saw this performed live? I saw this performed live last year. Yeah, Robin Hitchcock came to Ann Arbor. Got to see him. Cool. Uh, I've spent enough time dreaming over this album. You probably hate it. 
This was, no, I don't hate it at all. This was probably my favorite of the albums that you recommended. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I liked it a lot. So what would I compare this to? It did make me think of a lot of later indie rock and kind of indie-ish folk. It also made me think of earlier folk. I mean, at times I was reminded a little bit of like the the amazing string band or whatever whatever they are, you know, like that, that kind of like psychedelic yeah. folk from the late 60s, oh, early yeah. 70s. All of Robin Hitchcock's work is very psychedelic. Yeah, it's very psychedelic. It's very folky. It's very English. Mm-hmm. Again, oh, he yeah. sings with a very pronounced accent. Um, you know, there's no mistaking the heritage of these songs. But, you know, obviously it's the quirkiness is on another level and the lyrics are very amusing and at times even a bit ribald and offensive. Like, I don't, I don't know what he was trying to say <laughs> in uh, that second song where he's talking about, you know, homosexuality and a variety of other things and like, you know, quirks in childhood. Uncorrected personality traits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a, that, that's a very tongue in cheek song. I hope you realize I'm sure. Oh, yeah, of course. I'm. I'm sure. I'm sure it is. It's probably, you know, it's probably not the most politically correct song today. Although, it, you know, it's it's a fun song. Okay. But yeah. So just sonically, it is a folk album. Um, it is soft, but it's not like finger picking. It's not like um, Nick Drake or something like that. It. You know, the songs all have energy. They all kind of bounce. I, I just really thought the songwriting was good. The melodies were good. The chords chosen were interesting. He avoided a lot of the kind of typical folk or folk rock cliches. And there really isn't any attempt to make it sound like a country album. You know, you don't have a lot of like bluegrass instruments. There's no banjo or anything well, like that. Ye Nights of Sleeping Jesus is a little countryish. Yeah, that one that one is probably the exception. And that was actually my least favorite song on the album. That was That's the one fair. that I was kind of like, meh, meh, meh. <laughs> um, But I generally like the rest of the songs. Uh, yep, the, the closer was really good. It did not bring me to tears, but I don't know that any song ever really has yeah but i like this a lot this was uh this was quite nice i i would give it i wasn't like bawling but you know i got a little misty eyed. no i i know <laughs> what you're talking about it's all good man i just have a heart of stone i cry every several years so uh that's just me yeah i'm gonna give this eight bags of popcorn out of ten or out of nine and a half i thought this was quite nice and, uh, First of and all, you seem to know a lot about Robin Hitchcock, which is pretty cool. The scale only goes to five. Oh. And I'm a little offended by your violating the rules. Yeah. yeah. Well, we can end this now if you like. We can. Well, for me, it's an instant five-bagger. Uh, if it's your most favorite of the albums I recommended and you're only giving it, I, I, I'm translating your eight bags into four to give it the proper rating. I guess um, well, I couldn't, couldn't deliver a five-bagger for you, could I? Well, John, five is well. No, I said eight out of nine and a half. So if you do the math, it's 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 a bit better than four. It's a four four bags of filled popcorn, and a, it still rounds down to four. It still does. You're right. Yeah, you know, four out of five doesn't sound as good as eight out of ten. There's something psychologically about it. It's mathematically, it's the same ratio, but it just doesn't sound as good. Weird. So at least you're not pitchfork and giving it a decimal. Oh, John, point. you know, I'm being really picky. God, fucking pitchfork. <laughs> Oh, God. No, I'm not like Pitchfork. I'm also not, you know, overanalyzing the lyrics and being a uh, Pitchfork. (laughs) 
let's not talk. Don't speak that name in this house, <laughs> in this virtual studio. Nah, Pitchfork is whatever. Pitchfork is what it is. Have you seen the article David Cross wrote for Pitchfork? Yes, it's it was pretty great. Brilliant set there. Yes. Check that out if you haven't seen it, listeners. Everyone should check that out. David Cross is a funny comedian, and we like him. He's a friend of the show, for sure. Yeah, I don't have a lot else to say about this, but it was really enjoyable, and I am looking forward to rocking out to it again. Yeah. Not rocking out. I am looking forward to Then check out the rest of Robin Hitchcock's very extensive discography. So what are what are some other albums of his that you can give a shout out? So I talked about what are some of the other good ones? Underwater Moonlight with the Soft Boys is obviously one of his greatest. I really like from his later albums this album called Jewels for Sophia. Okay, that's a good one. And he also just put out a couple years ago a really good album called uh, I don't know. Yeah, it was Robin Hitchcock. It was just a self-titled album that he released a couple of years. Question, is it weird that at times I was reminded a little bit of Guided by Voices? Just a little bit. No, I don't think that's weird at all. I think it's definitely, they share the same whimsical, psychedelic sensibilities. Exactly. Yeah. I bet there's some influence there. And actually, you know, it's interesting that you're mentioning the connection with bands like R.E.M. It really does actually show that Robin Hitchcock was kind of a trailblazer right he was kind of oh for sure pointing in the direction of indie rock and alternative rock that would be yet to come because this album was from what year what what what, this this was 1984 uh, 1984 so it's very different from what was in the mainstream in 1984 i mean it really stands out oh yeah yeah that's cool it is sometimes interesting to hear some of these more alternative or you know college rock albums from the 80s and just think, like, no, the 80s wasn't all Hairspray and Phil Collins. There was actually some really interesting stuff happening in the underground mm-hmm. throughout the dark Reaganite decade of the 1980s. Yep. All right. So let's move forward. And move forward we did. But if you want to hear the rest and find out how it all ends... You're going to have to tune in next time as we continue part two of this episode. Speaking of which, this week's episode, or part one thereof, was edited by Frank in Poland. I will include a link to his Instagram in the description, with some editing as well by myself. The theme song was written and recorded by yours truly, with me playing the guitar, Brian Duda on bass, and Ian Kohler on drums. Good night.